If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. I'll see if I can figure this out without knocking too many things over. Micah chapter 5. I used to think my father to be an overly emotional man. He cried at our wedding. He cried as we did Christmas plays. He cried when he baptized me. He cried when he held his first grandchild and the second one. He cried at both. Um, It wasn't just like Amelia was somewhat special or more special. But once I had kids, I realized how special it was to see your children praising Jesus. So thank you to uh, those who have helped this year with our children's program, uh, teaching those children how to sing a song. My daughter just seemed more interested in pushing others to the front, but that's okay. It was something special to see all those kids singing to Jesus. Micah chapter 5. I want to focus in on the first six verses, but we'll read the whole chapter. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even seven commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword, he will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which do not wait for anyone or depend on any man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you, and demolish your chariots. I will destroy your cities of your land, and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft, and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the works of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Well, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. Before we consider uh, the rest of this passage, the first couple of verses, let's just uh, bow our heads in a moment of prayer to ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we do thank you and praise you 
for your word, for this passage, for Christmas, for the songs and hymns that we've been able to sing. We praise you for the little children who you say, let them come to me. We thank you that even they, at their young ages, can learn to sing and praise Jesus. We pray that you would help us to be faithful as parents, as a church, in training them up to look to Jesus. We thank you for this privilege, and we thank you for this time now that we can come together to look at your word. We pray that you would send your spirit to open up our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Micah chapter 5 might not be a familiar passage to you, as all preachers who preach through the uh, prophets, they always make the joke that it's the part of the Bible that hasn't been opened yet, right? Micah, it's, it's not a favorite passage to go to. In fact, we only really go to it uh, during Christmas because, not specifically of the book itself, but because it's quoted later uh, in the Bible in Matthew chapter 2. You'll remember that story, of course. King Herod, he has three, uh, not three, he has uh, magi from the east, and uh, they come to him and say, where's the king of the Jews born? Where, where is he? We come to worship him. And Herod gets all freaked out because, well, who's this other king? Uh, he calls the chief priests and the leaders and the elders of the Jews. And he says, where's the Messiah to be born? Where's the Lord's anointed supposed to be born? And it's interesting that he calls the chief priests and the elders because what, do we, what is our view of the chief priests and the elders? They're, they're dumb, right? It, when we read through the Gospels, they don't get it. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand that Jesus is the Messiah, but they actually get this right. Herod calls them and says, where's the Messiah to be born? And they quote Micah 5, verse 2, and they kind of smush it together with verse 4, and their conclusion is, he will be born in Bethlehem. And that's right. They actually get something right, which I'm not sure what that tells us about the rest of the book of Matthew, where they keep messing up. Matthew almost sets us up to understand that the chief priests and elders, oh, maybe we should listen to them. Maybe we should pay attention. They get it right. They understand that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. But then as we see over and over and over again, their incompetence, their failure, their misunderstanding, their misinterpretation as they go through um, Jesus' ministry, they get this right, but they get so much more wrong. Micah prophesied roughly 700 years before the time of Jesus, before the uh, chief priests and the elders tell Herod he is going to be born in Bethlehem. And in verse 1, we get a little bit of the historical context of the passage. There's this massive threat of being overrun by the Assyrians. The, The Assyrians are literally knocking on Jerusalem's door. There's impending doom and destruction and humiliation. There is no hope. There's no way out. Marshal your troops now, city of troops. That phrase, city of troops, it's, it's similar to the phrase, the city that never sleeps. What's the city that never sleeps? New York, that's right. Everybody just knows it's the nickname. The city that never sleeps, that's New York. There's always something going on. There's always something happening. There's always some place open. There is never a time where the city of New York just shuts down completely. And the city of troops for Jerusalem is another nickname, and it's more of a somber one. City of Troops uh, implies that this city is marked by constant unrest and war. If your city is known for having an army, if your city is known for having troops, that means that you're always using them. Everybody knows that you have troops. Marshal your troops now, City of Troops, for a siege is laid against us. 
you're being attacked. You've got your armies. This is what you know, you're known for. And if you actually track through Israel's history, there's a whole lot of war. There's a whole lot of conflict. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes wrong in Israel's history. Israel's ruler, if, and if we take historically, if we connect with uh, the book of Kings and Chronicles, Israel's ruler, Hezekiah, he can't defend himself. He can't defend himself, he can't defend the city, and he can't defend his nation. Israel has kind of, or Assyria has marched through Israel, and they've taken over Assyria at different times, and historically there's uh, different years and different stages of all this takeover, but now Assyria is here, they're about to take over Jerusalem. And Hezekiah can't do a thing. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. We've sometimes, anybody ever seen uh, The Three Stooges? Anybody ever watched that? Okay, there's a couple of chuckles. That means a few of you have seen it. We used to watch it all the time as a kid. We, uh, every Sunday night when we got home from church, there was a special on, I don't remember what channel, but we'd turn it on and there'd be three back-to-back-to-back episodes of The Three Stooges. And you know what they were famous for, right? Is they would, it was slapstick comedy. They would smash each other's heads off of walls and they'd hit each other in the face with their hands and they'd throw pie at each other and they'd get their heads stuck in pianos. I don't know how that one happened, but that one was a really funny episode. Um, they, they used it in a comical way. They would often get hit in the face, get hit in the head in a comical way. You were meant to laugh, but, but this is not comical. Being struck on the cheek with a rod is not something funny or hilarious, even as funny as it may be to see somebody get hit in the head. That's not the effect that Mike is going for. Being struck on the cheek was a disgrace, was an insult. It was something that I still don't really understand, just in my own 21st century mind. Uh, you'll see some older historical flicks that will have, you know, you take off the glove and you slap him across the cheek with the glove and it's, you're insulting him or you're challenging him to a duel or something like that. It, it, there's a lot of, it's not merely just the pain of getting smacked in the face. It, insult is intended. But there's a little bit more than that because biblically, um, being struck on the rod with, or being struck on the cheek with a rod is something that's done from a ruler to somebody who's done something wrong. So the king was meant to strike the insubordinate person, was meant to strike the individual with their rod. They had a ruling rod. And actually, if we look in Psalm chapter 2, the Messiah, that's a messianic psalm, that ruler strikes with an iron scepter, with an iron rod that cannot be destroyed. He strikes the, the nations, the, dis, the, the rebellion on the cheek. It's, it's a form of judgment. It's a form not just of insult, but you have done wrong, but you're also being judged. Here we see that Hezekiah, the Israel's ruler, the one who was meant to rule the nation of Israel, the one who was meant to represent God before all the other nations, is now being judged, is now being humiliated in front of the nations. Israel's history, it's not just Hezekiah's failure, but Israel's history is just loaded with failure all over the place. Hezekiah wasn't the first one as king to mess up as ruling the nation of Israel. You could track back through all the other kings. You you read the book of uh, Kings and Chronicles, and there's just one mess up after another. These guys are not known for being spot-on rulers. But it's it's not just the kings, it's the prophets as well. Um, it's not just the prophets, it's the judges, it's the priests. There's failure all over the place. Micah 5 verse 1 just kind of highlights for us, there's been failure back to back to back to back all over the place, and now enough is enough. They're being struck on the cheek with a rod. They are being judged. 
But, you've got to love, love that word but. Okay, when you see that word but in Scripture, it's usually an encouraging thing. Okay? Failure. All throughout Israel's history. But, you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, in contrast to the failed kings born in Jerusalem, there's king after king after king after king, and failure after failure after failure. These guys were born in the royal city of Jerusalem. They were born, born to royalty, and they failed. They messed up. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you will bear a ruler who triumphs. That's what verses 2 to 6 really highlight for us, is that this guy wins. All the failure that came before, it doesn't matter because now this ruler wins. Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. And small doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean here uh, quantity, although Bethlehem was small in terms of numbers. There weren't a lot of people who lived there. But it's specifically speaking about quality. Because there wasn't a lot of people there, it just wasn't on the map. There wasn't... There wasn't a real reason to pay attention. Nobody really said, hey, as we're driving down the road, let's stop off in Bethlehem. There was no attraction there. There was nothing to see, nothing fun. Small is often tied to meanings like weak and despised. So it's not just that you're small and insignificant. It's that you actually can't defend yourself. You're actually um, looked down upon for various reasons. Um, Bethlehem was not looked to for military might and stability. So remember, Jerusalem, the city of troops, was the city that was known for being um, always at war. It always had an army at the ready. Don't look there. That ruler has failed. Don't look there. Look to this small city, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It's insignificant if, for many reasons. And it, it claims its only significance because of who was born there. One person was born there. Who was born there? Pop quiz. David, that's right. King David. Da- um, Bethlehem was David's birthplace. And Ephrathah, it, it, it was a district. We're actually told in uh, 1 Samuel 17 that David, who was the youngest son of an Ephrathite named Jesse. Jesse and Jesse's father was Obed. Obed's father was Boaz, Boaz and Ruth. This is actually, Bethlehem has very little significance, but it's actually got a lot of history in it. Bethlehem is where Ruth and Boaz meet. Bethlehem is where Ruth and Naomi go back to after the famine. There is history here, but it's just not very big. It's not on the map. But if you're paying attention, you'll recognize, ah, Bethlehem, that's right. There is some history there, and that's actually where David was born. And David wasn't just a cool guy who killed some lions and bears and defeated Goliath. He became king. He became the great king of Israel. We're being told that by this ruler being born in Bethlehem and Eph- Bethlehem Ephrathah, we're being told that this ruler will be just like David. So we've had years, decades, centuries of rulers coming out of Jerusalem. And we may have had a good time. We may have had a good run. But it's all come falling down. It's a failure. We need to get back to David. We need to get back to him. He's going to be a king like David in both lineage. That is, he's going to be born uh, in terms of line. He's going to be the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of David. But he's also going to be like David because he's going to rule like David. He's going to rule in the way that David did. I think Steve mentioned this weeks, months ago. I can't remember. 
the one thing that distinguished David from all the other kings, does anybody remember? Does Steve remember? Steve, what distinguished David from all the other kings? That's correct. Not the answer I was looking for. He didn't worship other gods. This king, in his rule and his reign, will be just like David. I think, I think that's significant in the sense that it, we're not just being told some cool fact that no other king was born in Bethlehem except for David. That's true. But he will be a ruler just like David. A ruler from David's house. A ruler from David's line. Heir to the Davidic covenant. Remember that covenant that God made with David? David wanted to build a house for the Lord. He wanted to build a temple. He wanted to build a place, a permanent place for God to, uh, to live. And God said, that's a nice idea, nice try, but there's too much blood on your hands. It won't be you, it will be your son. Your son will build a temple. And in fact, you wanted to build a house for me, but I'm in turn going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a dynasty. I'm going to build a lineage, a heritage for you, David. In this sense, this ruler who's going to be born, the Messiah, he is going to be true royalty. He's going to be the most royal king that's ever born. There have been so many kings that have been born in Jerusalem after all these other kings, but this king is going to be like no other king. He's going back to David. One commentator said that the Messiah, he will have the finest royal blood flowing in his veins. He will be a true king. He comes out of the insignificant. He comes out of the place that's not on the map. For me, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you, that is Bethlehem, will come for me. Well, who's the me? Will come for the Lord. The, one, the ruler that comes doesn't come for your purposes. The Messiah that shows up doesn't come for your agenda. He comes for the Lord's agenda. He comes for, the, for Yahweh's purposes. He comes to rule over Israel, which is the same language that is used of David. David ruled over Israel. He will defeat Israel's enemies. What we're being told is all hope for the nation of Israel hangs on the balance of the birth of this ruler. Everything hangs in the balance of this Messiah, the birth of the royal prince. So don't look to Jerusalem. Don't look to the city of troops. Don't look to all the failed people of the past. Look to the Lord for help. Look to the Messiah. Look to this ruler who comes not for your purposes, but for his, for the Lord's. Stop looking in all the wrong places. Which is why I wanted to read verses 10 to 14, because there's three things that the Lord says he's going to destroy. He's going to destroy, he's going to tear down their confidence in military might. He's going to destroy their horses, he's going to demolish their chariots. He's going to destroy the cities of their land and tear down all your strongholds. It's going to be gone. Look, you put your trust in Egypt once before. You put your trust in your own military might. No longer. I'm going to destroy it. It's all going to be gone. They used to have their confidence in the occult. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. Enough with that. That will do you no good. Stop looking there. Look here to this ruler. I will uproot. Sorry, I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones. You will no longer bow down to the works of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. No longer these idols that you make. Will you go to for help? Go to the Lord. Go to the one that he is going to send. Go to the Messiah. 
we're being told that a promise that was made long ago to King David of ancient times, whose origins are of old, they're going to be fulfilled in this ruler. This ruler who comes will fulfill those promises. Then in verse 3, there's, there's, a, there's a twist, there's a shock, there's a turn, because everything sounds great, right? Messiah's coming, there's a ruler who's going to rule, he's going to win, he's going to triumph. Yes, he's coming out of uh, maybe insignificance, but he's coming from David. He's coming from his line. He's going to rule like David. Good, great, we're all on board with that. Therefore, for this reason, that's what that means, right? Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. That doesn't sound encouraging. You would think that after all of these good things that are being said, therefore Israel will triumph. The triumph comes a little bit later. But therefore, because this ruler will come from Bethlehem, Israel will be abandoned. Everything sounded so encouraging up until now. And it's interesting that historically, after Israel goes into exile, after Babylon comes in in a couple of different stages and escorts Israel and Judah the people of God, after they, they take them to Babylon, after Jerusalem's been destroyed and Israel has basically been ransacked, from that point on, Israel doesn't have a king ever. Now, there's King Herod, right? But King Herod wasn't really the king of Israel. He was a puppet king set up by the Romans. But Israel was legitimately abandoned from the time of the exile, we're told, until this ruler shows up. Israel will be abandoned. There was Babylon, there was Persia, there was Greece, there was Rome. The enemy prevails, right? For so many years, for centuries, the enemy prevails until the son is born, until the messianic ruler is born. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Until this son comes, the big question is, is who is that son? We'll get to that in a sec. Who is this son? We have no king. There was no king for centuries until this one ruler comes. And what does this ruler do? He will stand and shepherd his flock. Now, I'm not a shepherd. Any shepherds here? Anybody ever tended sheep before? Okay, Danielle has. How have you done a little bit of everything? That's so... I wasn't expecting that. I probably should have out of you, but... I'm not a shepherd, okay? But I do know that a sleeping shepherd is a bad shepherd. That a shepherd that's not on watch is a bad shepherd. A lazy shepherd is not a good shepherd. Actually, there are no lazy shepherds because the lazy shepherd does not protect the sheep. Therefore, he does not have sheep. Therefore, he's not really a shepherd. There is no such thing as a lazy shepherd. But you can't be lazy and watch sheep at the same time. They're running all over the place. They're eating grass over there. They're trying to get over there. I've seen videos of sheep in holes with only their two back feet sticking out. Like, I don't, I don't know how they fell in, but and the guys were like pulling and they had to get shovels and pull them out. Sheep are dumb. You need to pay attention to what they're doing. You have to be ready. You have to be on guard, right? This shepherd who comes, he shepherds his flock and he's standing at the ready. He's ready to protect. He's alert. He's strong-hearted. We sometimes, when we come to the Christmas story, we talk about the shepherds and the angels coming to the shepherds. It's true in some sense that shepherds were not the most popular people. 
but they weren't idiots. Shepherds weren't dumb people. Shepherds had to be strong-hearted. They had to be ready to kill lions and bears. David was a shepherd before he became the shepherd of Israel. I don't think that was an accident. You see, this is the kind of person we need shepherding the people of God. We need somebody who is willing to stand up against everyone who would come and attack. We need somebody who stands against the giant and says, you will not defile my God. You will not speak out against him. That's the kind of shepherd that Israel needs. This is Davidic language kind of woven in through this passage. Shepherding his flock. David went from shepherding his flock to shepherding God's flock. The the Messiah who comes in the line and in the like of David, he will care for and protect in the strength and the name of the Lord. He stands and shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Here name, the, the word name, it's not just I come in the name of. We've kind of lost that understanding of what that really means. To come in the name of means to come in the authority of. I I come with this individual's authority. I do this in the authority of the person who stands behind me. This Messiah comes in the strength of the Lord, and he comes in the authority of the Lord. The flock, the people of God, are protected by the power and authority of Yahweh himself. Not some other king, not some wannabe, not some other failure. The flock is protected by Yahweh himself. There have been many failed shepherd kings in Israel. You you can just go through the Old Testament and you can list them one after the other. This shepherd, though, he comes after many, many years, after abandonment, after failure, but he does not fail. He is faithful to his task. He does not fail. The flock finds security in his power, in his God-given power, in the power of Yahweh himself. Where do you find security this morning? Where do you find hope? We're being told, and actually the first part of Micah, the first half, couple of chapters of Micah, is people looking for hope and security in all the wrong places. Where do you find security? Is it in Yahweh and his Messiah? Or is it somewhere else? Verse 5 says, And he will be our peace. This son, this ruler, this Messiah who comes, he comes not in his own strength, but in the strength of Yahweh. He comes in the name and the authority of Yahweh. He will be our prince of peace. This prince, this son who is born, is our peace. It's not just that he brings peace, although he does that, but he is our peace. He's our peace during the invasion. Right? This is what's happening right now for the Israelites. Assyria is right there, but this ruler, he is our peace. He's our peace during destruction. He's our peace during failure. The Messiah does something unique in that he delivers, yes, but he gives peace. And peace is something I think we have misunderstood in so many different ways. Israel's history is not marked by peace, right? You can all agree on that? Even, even if you track back, depending on how far you want to go, let's just start with the 12 brothers. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 brothers. What's the problem? They don't get along, right? There's conflict. Then they're in Egypt. Then they're in slavery. And then there's judges. And then there's going into the promised land. And then there's failure to do what God said as they went into the promised land. And as a result, they have to fight all these different nations that they didn't push out of the promised land. There's kingdom splits. There's exile. There's foreign occupation. There's no peace in Israel's history. And I don't think many historians would claim that Israel and Palestine are ruled by peace even now. It's been millennia since Israel has had peace. And it's not just Israel. World history is not marked by peace. In fact, I think, I'm no historian, but I think most people would say that history is marked by somebody else trying to get ahead of somebody else. There's conflict. There's war. There's no peace. Because I don't think peace can be defined as a temporary absence of conflict. Does a ceasefire count as peace if you know that in 24 hours you're going to be fighting again? We use Christmas as an excuse for peace, right? Oh, it's Christmas time. Just be nice to each other. Oh, it's Christmas time. Let's just get along, right? You, you can't get along with your family for 11 and a half months out of the year, and then finally for the last half month you get together and you use the excuse, it's Christmas to have dinner together? Is that really peace when you go back to fighting with each other for another 11 months? Is it really peace when, yes, there was ceasefires over Christmas during World War II, and supposedly both sides come together and they have drinks and they exchange gifts, and it's wonderful and fun and exciting, and wow, isn't that a great story? And then January 1st rolls around, maybe even December 26th, and then they go back to fighting each other? Is that really how we define peace? As temporary absence of conflict? Temporary absence of fighting? I think that's the wrong definition of peace. We use Christmas as the excuse to say we have peace because we're getting along for a couple of days, but I don't think that's what genuine peace is. Henry Longfellow wrote a Civil War poem. It was a poem before it became a Christmas hymn. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. One of the verses says, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Every Christmas we feel like that, right? Every Christmas, we, we want to say, yes, let's just be nice to each other. Yes, let's have some peace and quiet. But we look at the world and we go, there's no peace in the world. Even as we have nice family Christmas dinners on December 25th, there's war happening. There's conflict happening. There is no peace on earth. Then he follows up. Yet pealed the bell, bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that sounds really good, right? That sounds like a good follow-up to, man, there's, there is no peace, but God's not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right pe- prevail. But how do we know? Because it doesn't feel like that, does it? Does it? Does it feel like the right has prevailed when we look at the world? It doesn't feel like it, but thankfully... Truth doesn't depend on my feelings. How do we know that there will be peace on earth? 
I think it comes from the understanding that peace, our understanding of peace, our definition of peace is flawed. It's not temporary. And it's not even necessarily between the two of us. It's between God and man. It's between what God does in humanity. It is true that the wrong shall fail and the right prevail because of what Jesus has done. Because the Son, the Messiah, has been born and he secured peace in his death and resurrection. He secured peace. But what kind of peace? The temporary peace that we so often talk about? I don't think so. Charles Wesley wrote probably my favorite Christmas hymn. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's what peace is. Peace happens when God and sinners become reconciled. This is the only way to have true peace. Peace with God. So, that temporary understanding of peace, that temporary ceasefire that we have when we come uh, to Christmas with peace on earth, goodwill to men, that isn't the peace that God brings. Because when we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, it's not temporary, it's permanent. It's not like, okay, I have peace with God right now, and maybe in the future he'll be angry with me again. No, Jesus has paid it all. It's permanent. Reconciliation with God is what the world really needs. Not another politician. Not another ceasefire. Although, yes, ceasefires are good. Less conflict is good. But if there's no promise of it not picking up again, that's not really peace. It's not really encouraging. Peace with God. Permanent reconciliation. Is true peace on earth. Jesus... The Messiah spoken about in Micah chapter 5, he is our peace because of what he accomplished on the cross. Do you have peace with God this morning? Have you come to God and been reconciled to him through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Have you met with God this morning on those grounds? Because you will not have a Merry Christmas if you haven't. We say Merry Christmas all the time, right? Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. It's just a thing we say. Apparently we're not allowed to say it in certain contexts, but oh well. Merry Christmas. What does that mean? Why is it a Merry Christmas? Because your friends are here? Because you're getting together with family you don't really get along with? Because you're gorging yourself on food? Because you're falling into the consumerism of the culture and society? What's so merry about that? Why is it a Merry Christmas? It's a Merry Christmas if you have peace with God. That is the only way to have a Merry Christmas. Now, I'm not saying don't have family dinner. I'm not saying don't buy your kids Christmas gifts. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the greatest gift that you can teach your children this year is to have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. No threat of death. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. It is truly a Merry Christmas, isn't it? When we have peace with God. I'm going to invite our musicians to come up. And lead us in our closing song.